Welcome to the Chord Strike Podcast, uh, episode one. My guest today is singer-songwriter Jeep Rosenberg. Uh, I first met Jeep at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, at a singer-songwriter retreat uh, led by Jimmy Dale Gilmore, one of the founding members of the Flatlanders. He's had quite an interesting path of life in music, and he's here today to tell you a little bit about that. Welcome, Jeep. Well, I'm, I'm really excited to be here, and thanks for giving me the honor of, uh, of uh, kicking this series off. You're welcome. Thank you. Let's talk about your musical influences, early and current, and how you got into music. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, uh, early. I mean, I guess, I guess the uh, this is sort of family family material. There, there were um, an, a mixture of of professional musicians and uh, enthusiasts in in my in my family tree. Um, um, two of my uh, great uh, great uncle and great aunt were both classical musicians, and eventually wound up uh, when they stopped concertizing whatever they became administrators at the Curtis Curtis School of Music in in Philadelphia so sort of like a Juilliard type place uh, that was on my dad's side and uh, on my mother's side my actually my grandmother was actually a, a light opera singer in in her youth uh, she used to uh, I guess she did like the Sigmund Romberg uh, Jerome Kern you know type of stuff and uh, Eventually, she got married, and she kind of she put it away. And um, once in a great while, she would sing. But she was one of these people that, when she turned the page, it was kind of gone. On the amateur side, though, uh, we just loved to sing. My my, I had uh, I'm the eldest of four boys, and uh, the first pair, my, me and my brother Walt, um, we used to take uh, car trips to see relatives and all that. We'd always sing in the car. Um, my parents uh, were uh, pretty good, uh, savvy jazz fans. Um, so, uh, I mean, they wasn't just, uh, you know, Glenn, uh, Glenn Gray and the Castellomas and the orchestra. It was more like Benny Goodman's sextet, and they knew who Fletcher Henderson was and had Coleman Hawkins records and things like that. And I loved uh, jazz uh, singers like uh, Louis Armstrong and... Jack Teagarden, uh, Bunny Berrigan. And at the same time, uh, my dad, during World War II, became a, a, a huge country music fan. Now, he was a born and raised uh, Philadelphian. And he was down in Louisiana during World War II and then over to Europe. And he came back from the war with this stack of 78s, kind of Columbia and Bluebird, 78s of Roy Acuff and Ernest, Ernest Tubb, Bob Wills, uh, Gene Autry, Sons of the Pioneers, uh, and so forth, and then um, and I grew up uh, with with those uh, with those recordings when I was four, five, six years old, um, and I just loved that loved that music. There was kind of something uh, wild about it. I mean, because uh, around the house it was more uh, had been more broadway musicals and irish 
music hall, not real Celtic music, more like, uh, you know, uh, uh, wearing of the green and that sort of stuff. And so the Roy Acuff and with the, I fell in love with the Dobro uh, sound on the Fireball Mail and uh, Freight Train Blues. And then at, um, as I was turning seven, uh, my dad got a job in South Carolina. So um, I kind of moved there. It's like, oh, this is where the music came from, you know. So uh, we used to listen to some all the, the really great, you know, Hank and Lefty and all from the radio station in Augusta, Georgia, across from the across the Savannah River. And so I had a, a, a southern boyhood, and uh, which was a, a lot of fun running around in the the lowlands and uh, in the piney woods and all that stuff and playing golf and caddying, junior caddy and all that kind of thing. So it was, it was great. And uh, I, uh, um, I got, uh, but it was all very casual. And but then what happened, then lightning struck about, I was about 11 and I saw Gene Autry in one of those, you know, Republic pictures, you know, cowboy movies. And I said, you know, he kind of, somehow it was always a guitar, no matter what, it would be this range war, you know, with the sheep herders and the ranchers and, you know, whatever, mining strike or, you know, uh, you know, the Comanches were, uh, un, you know, restless. And suddenly he reached behind the saguaro cactus and somehow it come out with this <laughs> gorgeous, like, OM-45 Martin uh, that cost about as much as a new Buick, probably in 1936 <laughs> or whenever. And um, he would start singing. And he, he actually, uh, reflecting back, I mean, he was actually quite a good uh, uh, rhythm guitarist. You know, he knew kind of some of the big band chords and and uh, some of those, uh, you know, Hollywood cowboys were at one foot in the jazz age and the emergence of Western swing. And he was a good guitar player. And, uh, but it was just the whole thing that, it just, I was like, I got to do that, you know. The interesting point is that around the same time or somewhere in that era, a great jazz guitarist, Joe Pass, uh, had the same experience. And that was how he got, he took the guitar way farther than me. Uh, but uh, it started the same way. And so um, I actually, uh, I was on fire and I, I, I sent off, you know, uh, five dollars and three box tops from, i don't know <laughs> quaker puff rice or something that was one of these you know teach yourself guitar and somehow i i put it together on my own and um i started a little group with um we were down at the beach and uh we were junior lifeguards all these kids around 11 12 13 years old would basically get um you know, iced tea for the real lifeguards, you know, <laughs> a lot of heavy duties. But we had formed a little a little group. We were all, you know, affiliated with this uh, lifeguard who was a football coach from uh, Delaware. And uh, and we, we uh, learned, uh, it was a great arrangement, three boy sopranos, you know, <laughs> and a guitar singing <laughs> down in the valley. We entered in this uh, talent contest and, um, we came we were runner-up the winners there was this these two kids from south philadelphia who were like uh, there was uh this this girl was an alto sax player and her brother was a drummer 
and they played Caravan by Duke Ellington. Oh, <laughs> they wow. were like 14 years old. So it was like, it wasn't much of a contest, but that was my, <laughs> <laughs> that was my beginnings in show business. I think we got the symphony, symphony <laughs> not the symphony, but the sympathy uh, vote. Um, uh, but uh, anyway, that's how I got started. But uh, then uh, I, uh, my grandmother was so impressed that I had done this much on my own that she uh, lobbied with my parents. It's like, well, look, he's look what he's done, you know, without any kind of, you know. And so they actually uh, got me a guitar teacher, and mm-hmm. um, it was a wonderful woman uh, who was a professional violinist, uh, was semi-retired, and. Uh, she taught guitar on the side. Christina Gross was her name, a lovely lady. And she saw I had some talent. And uh, so she got me started on classical guitar um, pretty quickly. Oh. And, uh, you know, I just love the sound of it. And uh, um, so uh, when I we moved to California at the, at the end of seventh grade, um, at that point, um, you know, I had two years of classical guitar training, and so folk music was emerging, and I really had a head start. I actually knew how to play the guitar, sort of. I mean, I could read music and, and uh, you know, actually produce some decent sound out of it. So uh, the unfortunate part was I started getting paid to play when I was about 15, so I thought I was good, you know. And so I, you know, I probably should have studied got more out of my teen years, but um, um, that was kind of how I got launched. I never thought about writing songs until later, mm. and I'll, 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 get, I'll get to that, but um, <laughs> it, was, uh, uh, it was a great time to, uh, Southern California was a, a cool place to live, and um, the, uh, I was initially playing you know, uh, folk music, learning songs, with gut, gut strings, you know, and, uh, oh, wow. You know, nylon strings and, uh, which, and so I kind of leaned initially as far as, you know, kids copy. Right. So, um, I, um, I tended initially to, to be influenced by a folk, uh, performers that used, you know, the, the gut string type guitar, which was Bud and Travis, who were a wonderful act, never quite, uh, uh, caught up to the Kingston Trio commercially, but they're very, very talented guys. And uh, they, they had great arrangements and skillful players. And uh, there was uh, um, Alex, you know, I guess Alex Hasselev and the Limelighters, uh, when he wasn't playing banjo, he would play the classical guitar, Theodore Bikel, and some of these folks. So that was when I was about 14, 15. And, I got it, I had to put a trio together and we played little you know, coffee houses and stuff. I was kind of like a teenage beatnik, you know. Very nice. Um, and um, I just kind of kept, kept, kept with it. But um, uh, as the music changed and as, you know, uh, of course, a lot about music is not the music. It's about what's hip. It's about oh, yeah. Taste, you know, what's cool. So... After about a couple of years, you know, things like the Kingston Trio and all that, that was not the, the, the hip thing. Uh, <laughs> I mean, looking back, uh, the Kingston Trio were remarkably uh, skilled and they, they, they made it amazing. 
a great mu they made great music really for what they did you know and uh, but um, as I was moving away from the whole commercial thing and I, I had heard Brownie McGee and Sonny Terry uh, you know I heard I started to hear uh, <laughs> I remember I, uh, my, my mom took me to a concert at UCLA and you can imagine imagine this this was Joan Baez who was emerging then and getting big Opener was John Lee Hooker. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow. <laughs> I, I, I mean, here I was just, <laughs> uh, you know, it was uh, a kid from the suburbs, basically. <laughs> and, and John Lee Hooker was, was quite a revelation. It was like, <laughs> comes out with this like <laughs> super 400 Gibson electric and <laughs> big amplifier and just started doing his thing. And I was like, Oh my God, what, what on earth? Wow. You know? And, um, at, at the same time, um, I, there was another uh, fellow who influenced my thinking about the guitar and, and, and performing, um, almost a footnote today. His name was Richard Dyer Bennett. And uh, people hear this, you know, go to Wikipedia. He's in there, I'm sure. He was a remarkable uh, performer, uh, very unusual. He was a countertenor, first of all. He's already such a part. And he had, I think he had classical training with John uh, Duarte, who was the British uh, guitar maestro at the time. And he did, uh, he, he was a British guy, and he... He did uh, traditional ballads, and but with very uh, well constructed classical guitar accompaniments. It was a, you know, it was truly a full uh, miniature orchestra when he performed. And again, it, it would sound rather quaint to our ears maybe today, but the musicianship. I was just amazed that because uh, I was playing and performing, and and I knew kind of what. I thought I knew what could be done, and um, this was something uh, something else. It was as much a revelation in its own peculiar way as hearing Clarence White for the first time, you know. Mm. Uh, and I, I tucked it away because over the years, uh, again, style-wise, well, you know, who would who would want to do that actually from a style perspective? But I think about how few. Uh, guitarist singers have, are able to, to by themselves to play uh, a, a really full, you know, like where nothing is, nothing's missing, you know. Um, I think some of the Brazilian guitarists kind of can do, do that. Not too, not too many. It's pretty, really interesting. It, so I always felt that idea was like to, I mean, maybe Jerry Reed, the idea of almost to be a pianistic approach, you know, uh, the kind of thing that, you know, um, uh, oh, um, well, Ray Charles, obviously, but um, I was thinking, uh, Charlie, um, we did um, Behind Closed Doors, um, oh, um, you know, talking about a country artist. Yeah, yeah. Um, he uh, got into, they took his piano away, you know, for commercial reasons. But his earlier work um, uh, was was really great, and I've always liked some of the singing, you know, piano players, and I always felt like 
the guitarist, man, if you could, you know, get to that. And again, I think Jerry Reed uh, certainly came came close. Um, but uh, I always thought that was kind of the ultimate. Anyway, um, that's early stuff. <laughs> and then Charlie I kinda, Rich. <laughs> I kind of went through Charlie Rich. I'm, yeah, I, I kept. It's funny, like Charlie Rich. I kept. I, I get. I was getting interference with uh, Charlie Pride, of course, and then there was Charlie Feathers, who was a great rockabilly artist, kind of obscure but amazing, and influenced a lot of people. Um, yeah, Charlie Rich. Charlie Rich. His early recordings are unbelievable. Um, and that's kind of, uh, I think, or even uh, Jerry Lee Lewis when he does uh, country, you know, it's uh, it's quite amazing. Um, but anyway, uh, I kind of tucked it all away. I went off to college and uh, getting more and more into country blues and uh, string band music and eventually formed a jug band. Uh, I played solo um, and um, golly, it's it's a long road. I mean, I could sort of maybe I list like jug band music and kind of country, country rock. Um, I always, um, uh, as as the the whole folk field expanded into folk rock and and country rock and and singer songwriter, uh, you know the James Taylor um, kind of kind of uh, movement, if you will. Um, I always thought it was. What, what Graham Parsons came up with uh, and what's considered Americana today, I always thought that there, were, there was that possibility. I'd always thought of that because I grew up with the country music and I, um, I loved it. And there were a few people, and unfortunately, Tim Harden, did, you know, he got uh, destroyed himself with drugs. I always felt that Tim Harden was, had a very remarkable approach that he was synthesizing mm -hmm. several types of roots music. And then um uh paul siebel emerged uh for a while and he wrote of course he wrote um uh, louise the big hit for linda ronstadt but uh he was a, a really wonderful uh a country singer songwriter um uh, and um always felt that there was so there was a, that possibility was always there um to expand the subject matter uh, and keep the country sound and and uh, deepen it and make it a little more uh, uh, challenging without losing the heart part. Um, anyway, as you can see, I have no trouble talking. <laughs> you you want to ask a couple questions while I head? I'm, I'm sort of inching toward the more current. Uh, I you know what I'm listening to, but if, is there uh, uh, stuff that stands out, jumps out from some of the you know, background you're aware of. So, yeah, you mentioned on your website that you were on Austin City Limits with Chris Christofferson. Right, right. That was, uh, that was my, yeah, moment on Mount Rushmore there. Uh, it was, uh, yeah, that was, that was definitely a career highlight that came out of a of a um, folk project that I was involved with in the late 80s and uh, early 90s to uh, collect and preserve and uh, make more um, publicly known um, a body of folk songs that um, GIs in the Vietnam War wrote for their own consumption. 
Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> it's um, something that is, you know, again, to make it more widely known because as you as you know, and most of the folks listening to this would, would, would take away from um, popular culture that uh, the GI in Vietnam as a consumer of popular music, particularly rock music and soul music. Um, and it's true, of course, in the, probably the, the, the big hits of the war were, you know, the, the animals, you know, I've got to get out of this place and uh, uh, some of the Creedence Clearwater, the fortunate son and so forth. And uh, later, um, you know, some of the uh, uh, R&B uh, stuff was really big. Um, uh, but at, uh, at the same time, there were um, both uh, military uh, singing traditions, um, particularly among aviators, they have sort of kind of glee club type of uh, tendencies. And then with the folk uh, revival, uh, you know, uh, underway, uh, and also the first generation of consumer electronics where you could, and you, you literally could buy uh, Robert's tape recorders, real to real recorders, at the PX, you know, I had a Mon Montgomery, anybody remember Montgomery Ward um, and Sears Roebuck and all, and you could uh, you could go and uh, actually buy tape recorders. You could also, people could borrow or adapt U.S. government <laughs> issue equipment, uh, and you could buy, literally, you, you could go into a PX and the really big bases, you know, a Tonson Hoot <laughs> and, uh, I don't know, Da Nang and so forth, and order a banjo and you know and come back in a few weeks and there it would be and so um some units people formed little groups and so forth it it was very random in some ways it seems to require uh, some leadership like a, a in a way folk leadership i mean in the sense that somebody who emerged from the ranks not top down who was popular and kind of made up songs about you a lot of them were satirical uh making fun of of you know, senior officers and and this and that you know um so it, it, it turned out that there was literally hundreds of these songs so it, it was a long war and not as long as afghanistan but it was quite a long uh period and um so um some of us who were uh, uh, vet veterans who were involved in music um, found a common cause with some uh, folklorists uh, that took an interest in this and that's how mm -hmm. it started Buff buffalo state uh, college uh, a lady named semi retired now but named lydia fish professor fish this kind of made this one of her objects of study and uh, and they set up a collection and so forth and so on so um, it, it sort of grew uh, from a Library of Congress kind of academic exercise. And uh, then we got on to, you know, All Things Considered and Weekend Edition uh, when mm -hmm. we did a show um, at, the, at Library of Congress. And uh, it led to uh, a commercial recording in Flying Fish, uh, which was a folk label that uh, I think is now owned by Rounder, their catalog. And... Um, and the Flying Fish recording um, uh, was heard by the chairman of um, a Corporation for Public Broadcasting, who was from Texas, Bill Arhus, he's gone now, great guy. Mm -hmm. And he said, this should be an Austin City Limits show. You know? <laughs> and uh, and uh, 
Chris, being a, a Vietnam era vet, he, he served ah. in, in Germany, taught at West Point briefly, and then huh. served as a helicopter pilot in, in Germany, did not go over to Vietnam, and had very complicated feelings about that. Uh, they thought he was the logical guest host. So there were, you know, a group of us, you know, um, seven of us who were uh, uh, six uh, uh, military, ex-military and one uh, former um, Red Cross nurse who had served in Vietnam and written a couple songs. And um, yeah, so we put a show together. And uh, it's um, it's a kind of a collectible now. Uh, for a couple of years, it was... Um, is called in country uh, colon songs of Americans in the Vietnam War, and uh, you can find it uh, the recordings uh, uh, on Amazon. Pretty much collectible now, but a lot of um, there's quite a few um, copies that are used in um, uh, Vietnam you know, American history uh, curricula, high school and college around around the country. Dozens of, dozens of um, uh, professors and, yeah. have, have made use of it because it's kind of existential material. Very nice. Yeah. Anyway, it was quite it was quite exciting to work with Chris. He was a very very nice guy, um, and uh, you know it was uh, one of those things you don't you don't you don't forget. <laughs> <laughs> I could imagine. Yeah. Uh, sounds very interesting. Yeah, I got to got to do a couple songs. There's um, if you uh, if you go into YouTube uh, for Jeep Rosenberg, you should see you should be able to pull up a, a couple of the uh, clips, uh, single song clips from the uh, from the show, um, and um, some of them identify me as, as Chuck Rosenberg, which was my name. That I used in when I was in the in the army, uh, but uh, you can find it in there. So, for the record, tell us how you got the moniker Jeep Rosenberg. Oh, Jeep! Well, it's it's actually the, my original family nickname, and uh, it is a little bit of a military connection in the sense my dad was in a in a tank company uh, during World War II uh, in Europe and. Uh, the the Jeep was uh, literally just invented. It was the newest, the newest, uh, shiniest, and also the smallest uh, vehicle in a in a tank company. Um, <laughs> and uh, I was first born in my generation. I have twenty eight cousins, um, but I, I'm the uh, the eldest. And so I was I was the brand new uh, shiny object. And so that's how that's how I got the nickname. So I did is uh, when I, I was kind of launching uh, in the Americana field in the well, early thousands, um, I decided to put it back into play, you know, because it felt like it felt right, you know, felt comfortable. And people remember it once they hear it, you know, it sticks in their minds. Yeah, <laughs> definitely does. Tell us more about your involvement with the Vietnam veterans and how that may have influenced your musical career. Yeah, it was it was a cycle of activity that that ran from uh, kind of the mid '80s into into the early uh, into probably 
mid mid 90s we did some touring and ah. uh, a lot of community venues you know uh, and uh, uh, VA hospitals we did Old Town School of, of Folk Music in Chicago I, nice Studs Terkel a couple of us uh, in show which was really really kind of a thrill he's quite a remark he was he was a remarkable um, journalist and yeah we got around the country and it was uh, a healing uh, educational I mean it had a, it was an, it was artistic but we considered it as much educational and healing you know uh, as well so it had a nice run very nice but I need to get back to uh, you know writing my own my own uh, things um, and um, so uh, that's that what I've been doing it's 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 I remember when I when we st uh, started out back in the folk era, it was there was a point where suddenly people realized they were supposed to write songs, you know, because <laughs> yeah. there was a there was this kind of demarcation, I guess, in if you look maybe around mm, 1964, 65, somewhere in there. Before that, there were professional songwriters you know they're in the in new york and los angeles and nashville and you know if you made the cut you know got a publishing contract and uh you know like that's um you know um um like the the guys that's uh, Stoller and lieber you know that wrote all those hits for the the drifters and the coasters and all that and um etc cetera, etc cetera. you know bert backrack you know and all, all these kind of people and it wasn't something that the musicians, you know, these guitar player rock guys weren't, you know, and then suddenly, suddenly you, you, you had to, and people realized that it was a, a much better, um, if you were actually in the music business, you know, for real, <laughs> that there was a revenue stream that was, you know, far superior than just touring as a bass player. Absolutely. <laughs> So how do you think your experiences as a Green Beret have influenced your music? You know, I don't know. Uh, I, I was able to write one song for that, uh, that show, um, um, which was an exception in a way. Um, they liked the song because most of the songs that they showed were actually authentic folk songs. That is to say, they had been written in Vietnam at the time. Um, oh, you know, it, it, it's a hard it's a hard question to answer. I mean, I'm um, I'm proud of the company I kept. Um, I rather not talk about the war itself. Um, uh, the um, and actually, the the truth is that um, I almost stopped um, um, playing music um, the last year I was in the army altogether because um, I felt so cut off culturally. Um, um, I had a well, this 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 is what podcasts are for. <laughs> To hear real stories about real real things, and um, 
the the person I'm going to talk about, and I, I I have a high high opinion of. So we all have we all make mistakes, but um, we a friend of mine when I was before I was in the special forces I was in the ordnance uh, um, ordnance corps uh, ammunition storage and stuff. Anyway, this this pal of mine and I heard there was this uh, concert. We were in Alabama, and um, we heard that there was this concert at Swan University of the South at Swanee, Tennessee, um, a big homecoming or something weekend, and Buffy St. Marie was giving a, a concert. And I was a big fan of hers. I loved her music and her originality. True, she was a true original, still is. And um, I also knew people that knew her. Um, I knew Patrick Skye pretty well. And uh, also my, my brother, Wald, had, um, was a, a kind of the first call folk harmonica player in, in Philadelphia for a few years. And uh, he played, I believe he played with her in concert uh, in Philadelphia. Now, people would, would call him when they, came, if, you know, when they came to town, Tom Paxton, people like that, and he would play harmonica for them. And so... Um, my buddy and I hitchhiked up uh, up to Tennessee, and um, you know hung out and made friends at one of the frat houses and drank a lot of beer and found somewhere to sleep. And anyway, <laughs> the concert was the next day, and I went to the show, and I went up to talk to her um, after the show, and just to you know introduce myself and. Um, yeah. Of course, I was in civilian clothes, but, you know, uh, basically she took one look at the haircut and just cut me dead. Oh. Wouldn't even talk to me, you know. Wow. And, uh, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was very depressing. And, uh, uh, you know, that was a sign of the times. Uh, that would have been about 1966. Um, and, uh, you know. Our society has gotten a lot of that sorted out by now, you know, the conflating the war with the war and whatever. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I remember once getting into an argument with this, uh, years later, this is just not related to the war, but it was like, it was some Canadian guy that was kind of, picking a fight with me, you know, about, I mean, a verbal about politics or American politics or whatever. I said, yeah, what you, what the hell, you think, I think I'm, what do you think I'm Henry Kissinger? What the hell are you talking about? You don't know who I am. You don't know what I think, you know, you know what I mean? People, yeah. you know, people get uh, uh, carried away, but, but it was, a, it was a symptom, you know, and I, I remember that year and uh, people think there's uh, bad times uh, now. 1968 wasn't such a great year, <laughs> you know, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, so, um, <laughs> anyway, um, people, uh, evolve in various ways or devolve in various ways. <laughs> it's all in play. Anyway, I guess that's my best answer to all that. Fair enough. Fair enough. I do get a little check every month because it's like, <laughs> you know, I don't think uh, 
um, you know, um, Sly Stallone and uh, Chuck Norris and all those guys, they don't seem to have the same muscular skeletal issues that uh, the veterans that I know that served in, in special operations have. It looks great on it looks great on the, in the movies. You mentioned you were thinking about quitting music when you were involved with veterans. Tell us a bit about that. So um, I wanted to make a point that uh, you know after the uh, the whole uh, period cycle of of work and creativity around the uh, Vietnam veterans. A folklore project as it started to wind down uh, toward the mid 90s. Um, you know, I began to feel, uh, you know, an urgency to get refocused on my own original work and uh, do, you know, do more writing and and find uh, some lane, you know, or two. Um, and um, at the same time, I became aware of, uh, of, of Jimmy Dale Gilmore's work um, and, and uh, Butch Hancock as well. Um, their consciousness or their, what do you want to call their aesthetic and the way they use language and integrated the sort of country and country and some almost, you know, Beatles and folk uh, in a really creative way and uh, uh, really uh, was quite taken by it. Um, and I remember uh, listening to uh, some of the songs on uh, Braver Newer World, particularly by Jimmy. And uh, around that time, I guess uh, the, uh, the rumor mill or, or whatever, who knows how you get these uh, pieces of information that that Jimmy was launching a songwriting uh, workshop at Omega Institute in upstate New York, which is kind of a, you know, it's a new, new age uh, summer camp for adults um, focused on, you know, adult learning. It was a lot of uh, Tibetan Buddhist uh, meditation focus and expanding out from there into the arts and all kinds of areas. And, uh, kind of a, a cool refuge. Um, and so I signed up for the very first uh, course that Jimmy gave. And uh, it was, uh, it was very exciting uh, to be on the maiden maiden voyage. Um, and uh, all I could say, I could just have to describe it not so much as a technical songwriting course in the industry sense, uh, where of which there are many offerings uh, about how to write a hit song and and all that the mechanics and and so forth, but I would say more of a creativity uh, workshop focusing on song uh, and also on community and uh, engaging with other creators at all levels. So there's very much. Uh, I would say an anti-elitist bias, but maybe more uh, an egalitarian bias. You know, there are a lot of uh, teacher uh, music gurus that will 
uh, extol a beginner's mind in the Zen, Zen sense, but that doesn't mean they want to hang out with actual beginners. You know, there's a distinction there. there you know? And um, Jimmy is quite, quite the opposite, uh, uh, open-hearted, but uh, uh, inside dwells a, a very sharp uh, critic in the sense of seeing things clearly, that's all. Uh, so um, it's a very fascinating approach. And uh, again, as I say, I went to the very first uh, version of it. And over the years, um, I've gone back many, many times and the community uh, in the workshop, it's, uh, you know, like uh, recidivism, right? <laughs> People keep going back to prison, right? I think we have a, a, re a repeater rate of well over 60%. Um, and that's created a sort of a community that's spread beyond the workshop itself where people can visit or they can uh, support each other when they're on, on tours um, and things like that. And just a lot of friendship and, uh, and support and sharing. So it's been a very important part of my personal and creative uh, uh, development. So I just wanted to make make sure I noted that as being sort of the middle the middle period as I've gone through. You know. So let's talk about your current musical influences, and then we'll get into some songs. Yeah, I. Uh, yeah, I think we're getting there. We'll get to a song or two. Um, um, it, well, it. You know, influences is sort of like, um, on one hand, I feel like I've been influenced by so many, uh, so many different uh, types of uh, music uh, and tried to, you know, uh, integrate them, absorb, absorb and integrate them. Um, and um, so now it's more like um, I look for things that, um, sort of refresh me or ins inspire me, you know, uh, and I revisit things that, um, um, that uh, I, I felt like I, I wish I didn't listen to as carefully at the time, you know, I mean, so lately I have been listening a lot to uh, some of the um, um, R&B singers that you know, used uh, guitar, I mean, like um, Percy Mayfield and uh, Bill Withers. Um, I listened to kind of like Cornell Dupree uh, guitar parts. Um, um, and just some of that, that those pop staples. Uh, I, I loved the way he played play guitar. Um, so I'd be listening and trying to find my own, not to copy, but to be inspired by it and sort of find some of my own solutions, you know, uh, trying to find, I feel more, um, my, a lot of my writing was very literary, very, has been very literary and kind of storytelling, but I feel a, an appreciation of the groove, of the groove uh, more than ever. And even, even you listen to people who you don't think of as being uh, real funky or whatever, um, like, 
uh, the late John Prine, if you go back and listen to his f- folk guitar parts, they're very forceful. Um, they really pop. Um, you know exactly. He has a pocket. You know, even though it's 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 not uh, funk or blues, uh, but within his genre, it, it has a, a pocket. You know, so I, I listen to a lot of things just for, just for that. Um, um, I um, I've been working on my singing uh, the last few years very intensively. So I listen a lot to a lot to vocalists. Uh, just, I'm just again, it's things that I thought I understood, and I go back and I hear more. You know, and you listen to a great singer like Sarah Vaughan or someone like that, and just you can hear more and more. Um, you have to take the time. Everything just goes by so quick now. Everything is, you know, TikTok. You know, it's. Uh, um, and, um, I'm finding if you take, if you really take the time, uh, you'll hear a lot. Uh, I love New Orleans music and, uh, yeah, that thread, you know, uh, Mike Napolitano, uh, who is, um, actually Andy DeFranco's life partner, but he, he's a producer, wonderful producer, um, he did a project with James McMurtry a couple of years ago where he, I think I really, li- I really liked it uh, because uh, McMurtry is kind of that singer, rock singer, songwriter thing, amazing writer. Um, but I liked what he did, uh, Forgotten Coast is a, is a reference track for me. Um, very funky and uh, uh, it's uh, an interesting, I, just, I love, I love a, a strong lyric that has a real groove with, with it that doesn't, you know, I think same thing with um, a, a, a Ray uh, LaFontaine, um, the bass parts on his recordings, you know. So this is when I, so it's in a way, it's almost like not letting myself be influenced, but to go out and find a deeper influence from things that I'm already aware of, you know. Or certain producers, you know. Um, I like uh, Gerf Merlick's, uh, Morlick's rather, um, his own recordings. Very interesting. The way he uses silence. Um, you know, he's done wonderful work with others, but I, I, I really enjoy. I heard him in, in Nashville at a conference a couple of years ago, and he did a, a set, and uh, wow, I, I loved it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we're going to queue up your first song now. It is called La Ultima Lagrima, if I remember correctly. Which means, by the way, which means the last, the last drop or the last, could mean the last tear or the last drop, like of whiskey. I see. Very cool. And it was written in 2005? Uh, well, it was recorded, and I, I, was, I wrote this um, first versions of it, I think, in the 90s sometime. I'm not sure. 
exactly now. Down the boulevard of busted hopes You'll spy a neon sign An upside down martini glass With a drop about to fall You'll puzzle out the letters On that old adobe wall It's la ultima lagrima Out on cemetery line A portrait of Judge Crater Hangs high above the bar A thousand year old egg or three Scarf and goggles, mad dogs, jungle spats, Ambrose beer set the piano, clank and twinkle, little star. Last call at La Ultima Lagrima. Drink up while the tears of life. That's all at La Ultima Lagrima Ay, ay, ay Who knows if we'll greet the rising sun Francois Villon is throwing darts The rope burns on his neck You can buy a round phenomenon in her path to lose the trick Al Capone's confederates are drinking up his stash and the bosun of the thresher pipes all hands on deck Last call at La Ultima Life still run. That's all at La Ultima Lagrima. Ay, ay, ay. Who knows if we greet the rising sun? When the bay has gone to white caps, when the hay has gone. Just a shopping mall When Rome is level flat You're gonna need my favorite joint 
La Ultima Lagrima. You're listening to the Chord Strike podcast. And let's talk a little bit about this song. What inspired you to write this? Well, it, this is an interesting example of uh, carrying an image. You know, some songs take half an hour and some songs take half a lifetime. Um, I carried this image for uh, a decade or more. There was in my neighborhood in New York where I lived, um, I'm speaking from Tulsa, by the way, Um, uh, but uh, in uh, Pershing Studios, it's a wonderful uh, uh, residence, a converted elementary school. It's been uh, converted into uh, loft apartments, and uh, I'm in the a shared uh, studio, uh, music studio, art studio space right here, which is really great. Um, so thanks to them uh, for being my uh, allies. Um, yeah, in New York, in Hell's Kitchen, uh, where I have our, our place since uh, the 1977, uh, Hell's Kitchen now is quite shishi, uh, uh, Bucci, Coochie, Bucci, Bombolini, uh, <laughs> upscale and uh, hip, hip neighborhood and so forth. But the first uh, 10 or 15 years, it was, uh, it was uh, very uh, dysfunctional and uh, dangerous uh, and uh, ill-served uh, neighborhood. And um, there was a lot of uh, uh, colorful uh, stuff, not all of it in a good way. Um, and there was a bar... <clears throat> And uh, 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 down uh, Ninth Avenue, uh, down around Thirty uh, Ninth Street, um, it was the kind of bar where you know they check you at the door for razors, and if you don't have uh, one, they give you one. Um, it was called the Last Drop, and it had uh, a neon sign, uh, like the song uh, indicates, of an inverted, uh, you know, neon martini glass with a with a drop falling from it, um, um, the force of gravity doing what it does. Um, one of our friends, uh, Maggie Dubris, actually was an EMT that served that area, and she remembered having to, uh, uh, you know, evacuate a few cases from that bar, actually, in the 19, early 80s, I think. Um, so um, it was... Um, a pretty, uh, just a very vivid image of this last drop of, uh, of you know, liquor. Uh, and I, I carried that image around for years and thinking about what, you know, okay, 
what could I do with that? And then um, I started to write this idea about, and I'm not sure how it morphed into this. Um, I decided that it was a kind of Bermuda Triangle or a Twilight Zone kind of place. Um, and uh, it may have had something to do with one of the worst gigs in my life was in Binghamton, New York, uh, which was Rod Serling's hometown. And he sincerely, from what I've read, sincerely hated the place. And there's a famous episode of Twilight Zone that's set in the Greyhound bus station. Uh, it's uh, Serling's uh, uh, venture into, um, I guess, avant-garde. Uh, 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 drama, where if you remember that episode, there no one ever leaves and no one ever arrives. Everyone is just sort of in this state of um, um, stasis and paralysis, and while the clock ticks away the twenty-seven minutes of a television show from that era. <laughs> I think at that point he must have had some very successful seasons to be able to <laughs> get, get, get them to do that. But uh, that was his, that bus station was still there when I was there in the, in the um, 80s, I guess it was, or early, yeah, 80s. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so there's this kind of Twilight Zone uh, thing, and I developed that on my own. And it kind of grew the idea of the song of this strange, you know, place um, with, uh, you know, mystery people who had disappeared, like Ambrose Bierce, who disappeared during the uh, uh, Pancho Villa period uh, in Mexico, and uh, then Al, Al Capone's mysterious stash, and this and that, and the other thing, all the characters. Um, well, I had the strangest experience. Uh, I worked in the 2000 census and um, there was a lady there, one of the administrators uh, in the office who was a Chicana from uh, South Texas and very lovely lady. And uh, at one point, and I don't even know why I asked her, I said, I've written this song and does it have any, does it, ring any bells that have any resonance for you and she said the last drop Lyle to my lagrima she said sure he said there's a tradition in my community of the there's a there's a usually a bar across the street from the gates of the cemetery and it's a tradition for the funeral cortege to stop and everybody goes in and has one drink and it's called the last, the last drop, the last drop of the person's life, the last drop of, you know, whatever, however you want to, uh, you know, uh, explain it. And that's a tradition, and that's what we call it. And I'm like, whoa, my goosebumps had goosebumps, you know. I was like, what? Are you kidding me? And, uh, but yeah, and so I, I felt, I felt vindicated or confirmed or something, and. Um, I, you know, kind of finished up the song um, and um, and expressed, you know, some of my feelings about whatever, my philosophical perspectives, I don't know, in the bridge. 
um, rather dark. Um, and uh, that's how it kind of came together uh, with the chorus and, and, and everything else. Um, and I have to, uh, I have to say uh, that the Charlie uh, Giordano, uh, the accordion player on this is just, just brilliant. Uh, if, you, if the listeners uh, might not know, but he is often um, uh, accordion, melodic, um, some kinds of key um, folk keyboard player for Bruce Springsteen. He was the one that in the uh, the Seeger sessions, the sort of arena folk project of Pete Seeger songs that Bruce did. Uh, Charlie was the uh, accordion player on that project and that tour. And uh, man, he was he was he he was great to work with. He was so quick and so sensitive. So that was really a thrill. Um, to be able to put him on the track. So yeah, so that's that's the story. <laughs> it's my Rod Serling song. Awesome. Um, yeah, I kind of also pick up an almost like person just kind of crawling home from the bar at some ridiculous hour in the morning type <laughs> image. Uh, when I when I heard that song the first time, <laughs> <laughs> so now was that an original or was that a co-write? No, that was that was solo. I know you uh, you wanted to ask me about that. Um, my experiences, I you know, I've written a few uh, good songs um, in uh, uh, co co-writes. Um, it's not um it's not my habit i I'm, it hasn't a, it has an appeal uh because uh, you know uh, it's a wonderful uh spur to productivity you know for sure you can write get more songs written um, <laughs> i uh, i've n never had much uh success in writing um, co-writing to an existing piece of music. I, it just, I don't, I know some, some people when they, they'll get a, a melody or something and they'll hear uh, words or they'll hear an idea from the melodic material that someone else has written. I've never been able to do that. I'd love to. Um, the, um, the successes that I have had, um, it, it's when my uh, co-writer or myself, we, we come up with a, a kernel, some, some piece that has a, we just both recognize has potential. That's all about all I can say. So it's the only thing that's different about that is that it's, it's another person uh, uh, agreeing that it does, you know? I mean, the, it's the same process for me by myself. It takes a while to find that uh, kernel, like a starter for bread, you know, or um, you need that, that element that has some sort of uh, energy or potential, you know, or, or just has some sort of charm, uh, you know. Um, and I've had, a, I like, I've had some, a few experiences where I'm, I, I meet somebody for the first time as a writer and part of the process of 
getting to know them, it seems to generate um, um, some energy that results in a song. Um, but I've never really had a, a, a co-writing schedule with someone. Um, I, I see the appeal, uh, but um, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, some of the writers that I admire the most um, are, are not co-writers, you know, uh, Jesse Winchester, uh, uh, Billy Joe Shaver, uh, um, Leonard Cohen, um, Joni Mitchell to an extent. Um, um, yeah, I just, um, I can, I can see how it could be done. I, 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 I but um, I'm open to it, but it hasn't been my, my typical approach, you know. Fair enough. I guess it depends what people's writing style is. Yeah, I have a couple friends that we, we keep trying, you know, every, every, I won't name names, but every, you know, you say, okay, it's, try, it's time to try again. <laughs> they know who they are. <laughs> I don't think I'm that easy to write with. I'm kind of opinionated and, uh, you know, I have a whim, a whim of iron sometime. Uh, it's, it's embarrassing. How long have you been writing songs and do you find that you have a typical writing process? Yeah. Well, the first, how long, uh, I mean, I've been, I've been writing in terms of just so-called creative writing um, of one kind or another since I was a child, really. I mean, I've been a student writer, poetry, short stories, and, and all that. Um, and then I actually wrote uh, professionally in advertising for about a year or so um, when I dropped out of college. Um, songwriting... Um, it came uh, I, when I was in school, I wrote a couple songs that were, I wrote one serious song I can remember. And then a couple of comic, you know, parody comic type songs. Um, a lot of people start that way or, you know, Irving Berlin started that way as a singing waiter mm -hmm. in the Lower East Side and he used to make up songs insulting the customers <laughs> you know for each other so you know you know jack would jack would say hey make up a song about mo you know you know and i'll pay you you know that sort of thing and they, these, these were you know takedowns uh and that's how he got started so par parodies of course is the way is the way a lot of people start um i think um probably started in the let's see um late 70s um you know i did i remember feeling um that there were so many great songs out there that it just seemed um even though i knew it could write I, it it seemed so like who actually Bob Dylan get a notorious interview in the eighties <laughs> about this, where he told people to stop writing songs. There were enough already and he was going to stop. And it was just absurd. Um, 
thingy, <laughs> put some journalist through. But I mean, um, you know, there is that sense that like, oh my God, it's got to be pretty good to be worth doing at all, you know? And at some point I uh, changed um, and I started um, writing songs in the 70s and then uh, I got much more serious and uh, I entered some contests and uh, I placed in a national contest. I went to Nashville in the early 80s and uh, um, yeah, I had some single song contracts with some good places and um, you know, I said, oh, okay, I, you know, I guess I could do this. Um, so, uh, but I, it's, it's, it's funny. It's, it's hard to remember at what point. No, I think I was, oh, okay. No, no, no. I did a song for a local, now I'm remembering. It was 1971, 72. Uh, I'd left school. I'd finished, I'd gone back to college and finished. And I was studying guitar. And um, and I started writing, and um, I did a, I did a song for local television, public access documentary that came off pretty well, and, and then another song that was part of um, a grant. Uh, I got a, an arts grant from the state. Yeah, so I guess that must have been. Because uh, I'd been studying poetry in school and and just working on the music and just soaking up a lot of stuff. And I guess that must have been the, the turning point around 1971, 72. Yeah. Again, the standard process, I, I is what I said earlier, there's this thing of finding a kernel, just some phrase. For me, it and I think there's this, I, I, I'm in a category from what I've heard. I've talked to a lot of writers, you know, and the category is I, I kind of get somehow this chunk of a phrase and usually the word, the, the, the key words and the music come together. Uh, and it may be the words that I ultimately use. I don't do scrambled eggs, you know, the famous story about yesterday yeah, you know, Paul McCartney had had written it for, I don't know, a year before, and it was always scrambled eggs because he didn't know what the lyric was. <laughs> he had this great music. And um, I, I don't do that so much, um, although I might, in a line, I'll use nonsense syllables for a line here, line there. Um, usually there's the, it might be a title. I do write from a title quite a bit. So sometimes that kernel is, in fact, a title which maybe later gets abandoned and maybe it's not part of the chorus or maybe, you know what I mean? It just gets retrofitted or thrown away and stuff, something, you know, but there's a process there of kind of substitution, but yeah, that's basically it. And then how, but how it develops from there is, is a little mysterious. It depends upon whether it's kind of a flow or whether it's a, pick and shovel, you know, you know, hacking away at it. Uh, Very cool. Do you enjoy tension or more flowing patterns in your lyrical rhyme schemes or both? And why? Hmm. 
Now, were you talking mostly about use of rhyme now? Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, I don't, I, I feel like it's a question of, of judgment um, and instinct. I don't think there's a rule. Um, there is something very satisfying about perfect rhyme if if the rhyme doesn't, you know, if the tail doesn't wag the dog, you know. Um, I mean, you think of certain songs where the, both the rhyme scheme and the prosody, which would be, you know, the fitting of the syllables, consistent fitting of the syllables to the to the music and how it you know, it, it marries up. Um, you know, there's certain writers that um, it just I mean, think about I, I taught a workshop on this uh, once uh, at a songwriters festival. Um, and I like to use the example of, um, you know, um, brother, can you spare a dime because it's absolutely perfect, you know, um, you know, um, you know, they used to, they used to tell me that I was, I was building a dream. And so I followed the mob when there was, uh, earth to plow or guns to bear. I was always there right there on the job, mob job and everything is, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, why should I be, you know, peace and glory ahead? Why should I be standing in line waiting for bread? And every single, you know, rhyme is, is perfect. Um, and this was uh, Yip Harburg and Ira Gershwin, I think. Um, they wrote that. Um, and they had studied Gilbert and Sullivan and uh, Browning. And that was the norm, you know, that was what you were supposed to do. Now, you know, things have changed, and I think there's a lot of value in, in conversational writing. So you have this sort of half rhyme or slant rhyme, you know, different names for it. And um, I do think um, I find it pretty satisfying. Um, for verses uh, to be imperfect um, because you're laying out, you're trying to lay out some situation or perspective or story in a, in a naturalistic sounding way. And sometimes perfect rhyme sounds unnatural. Now that's your job to make it sound, sound natural, but sometimes it just does. I do think choruses, um, unless it has some other device that's equally satisfying as perfect rhyme, I think perfect rhyme in choruses is, is valuable. I think it locks it in. I think it makes it people remember it. I think it's easier to sing with. Um, and uh, I think it's, you know, it's a plus, you know. But again, I, it, it's, it's, it's not a, a rule that I feel, you know, like there's a compulsion, you know. The songwriting police will knock on your door, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> indeed. So, what are three pieces of advice you have for aspiring songwriters? Hmm. Three pieces of advice. 
I'll see if I can come up with three that are useful. <laughs> they probably will be familiar to some people that have looked into this. Um, of course, my favorite story about this is, um, you know, Ray Wiley Hubbard. I don't know if you know his work, but he's a very funny man. And uh, one time he was at a workshop and a young writer was just going on and on about his commitment and how he admired the way he kind of, you know, put his hand in the fire and held it there. He was like totally committed to his art and, and uh, how could I be like you, you know? And Ray said, well, I would advise you not develop any other skills. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, like, yeah, if you got nothing else you can do, you better do it well. Um, I, I, I think um, uh, there's a couple of things that come to mind right away. Uh, one is, and there's different ways to say this, but eliminate unnecessary verbiage and ruthlessly and keep, as you rewrite, keep looking for opportunities. Um, is, is, the, is, it, is your meaning uh, understandable without this word or that word or the other? I've, over the course of my writing uh, experience, I've become even very um, skeptical about, you know, conjunctions. Um, and unless there's really a need for a but, you know, or yet, <laughs> um, usually the clause to clause meaning in a, in, in a, in a song, the juxtaposition or the parallelism alone, there's a logic to it, you know, and it, it makes, it has its own grammar. And uh, I, I uh, so I've gotten even more and more um, um, focused on that. The, the, you can always, it seems like you can always make it uh, shorter or, or more straightforward or terser or whatever. Um, the second thing, um, see it was um, well well while I'm while I'm treading water I will say that um, oh I know I know what it was this is for those who are clever I mean I think the people people have a lot of heart and a lot of uh, a good work ethic <laughs> are sometimes wind up writing better songs than people who are very talented in in in, in a verbal sense, um, uh, it's it, it's it's weird because you want to have a lot of uh, knowledge of of words and language and um, sound and and all that as much as possible. Um, but one of the things that happens with cleverness uh, or quick-wittedness and I've seen it happen is you can ruin a song by finishing it too quickly um, some songs and, and again you develop judgment some songs have to kind of marinate or some songs you don't actually know what they mean you may think you know what they mean but they mean they maybe they could mean more and if you I, I, I had an experience co-writing once with a fellow he was a, he was an attorney he was very, very fast, very, very smart and very fast. And we'd written this really good song. Um, 
sort of a f kind of folk type song. Uh, and he wanted to write a bridge. He wanted to write a bridge. And he just, he got, I don't know what, you know, it was like a, he needed Ritalin or something. I don't know. But he insisted, <laughs> he insisted, on, and it ruined the song. He just, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't work on it anymore. And it was like, it had completely, it turned it into something banal, you know, uh, and it needed to be set aside. And, you know, you think about it, you know, and so that's, that's the danger if you're, you're too smart for your own good. Um, so that's number two. Um, I guess the other piece of advice, or, and it's really more of a, of a um, technique than general advice, but um, try, um, try writing from a different base than you're used to. In other words, if you are a verbal expression person, um, this is especially helpful, I think, if you sort of feel like you're in a rut or you haven't done anything interesting for a while, but say you're a verbal expression person, you know, and then try to write from, from, from beats, you know, try to write from a rhythm track or, you know, and, you know, find, um, find a rhythm track that will inspire you in a different way or something you've written where you feel that you like it, but it's not happening for some reason. See if you can find a, a track or a loop uh, that you can rewrite the song use, using that. And the same thing, if you were basically a groove person, then take some time to just be much more, uh, do a lot of brainstorming and exercises with language, you know, play, wordplay, and, and take more time and more effort with that. Um, you're not, it's not going to hurt the area, your area of strength is not going to be, it's still going to be strong, but it just is a good way to sort of shake up your, you know, any predictable, you know, predictable patterns that you, that you have. Mm, I've sure. been trying to do that myself a lot and it's helpful. Very cool. I think now would be a good time to switch over into our live segment of songs. Sure, sure. Let's let's hear some uh, live in the studio. Well, this is uh, it's called "Old Friends in California Wine," and uh, this would have been written about just about twenty ten, twenty eleven. Uh, I guess part of my uh, cal kind of a California sweet. Uh, three songs that I wrote while we were living part of the year out uh, in uh, Northern California. And uh, maybe I'll do it and uh, I can talk a little bit about how it came to, you know, got where I got the idea and so forth. How's that sound? Sounds good. Okay. All right. Let's give it a shot. down Route 17 Manzanita Foothill Pine The Chevy seems to know the way Here and down 
I'll just hear her whine Turn into the pothole street Just a couple been filled in Light into the parking spot Hardly can contain a grin Don't forget the corn tortillas Heirlooms ripened on the vine Moonlit lake, San Samia Old friends and California wine Basking on a log, ignorant, nervous with our nearness, about to flap up in the fog. There's a quiet bed to burrow, doggies dreaming in the sun. Lily's wild down by the willow, chopping onion, there she's done. Don't forget the corn tortillas. Ripened on the vine Moonlit lake Sense on me Old friends And California wine Old friends And California wine Talk about the old days Talk about tomorrow Talk about the kids they borrow Talk about the RV The work that it still needs And talk about the aquifer Choking up with weeds And talk about the world outside So little we can do How we still try to Still hope to see things through Don't forget the corn tortillas Heirlooms ripened on the vine Moonlit lake, Sansomia Old friends and California That was Jeep Rosenberg with his song, Old Friends and California Wine. There we go. So, how did that come about? <clears throat> well, you know, some old friends. <laughs> um, we have some uh, friends we've known for a long, long time, and um, uh, they live in, uh, in Watsonville. California and uh the kind of friendship where you know you have the key to their house and, <laughs> and you know we just spent so much time together and and uh maybe you have friends who sometimes you just feel like they're you feel um we're more comfortable more at home in their house than yours somehow I don't know maybe because the the bills on the kitchen table their bills not yours 
<laughs> or they drink drink a bitter brand of scotch or or whatever you know what i mean but uh they've just been very kind to us and uh so that's part of the part of it i wanted to actually you know, give them a gift you know and uh uh, on the other hand, <laughs> it was also, uh, there was a certain amount of, um, I don't know what you want to call it, envy or uh, um, my, my, our, our, our lady friend of the couple, um, she was going to go out to hear Jerry Jeff Walker, and he, she was all excited about it, and because um, uh, he's one of her favorites from, from uh, you know, whatever back in the day and uh it was uh, of course jerry jeff and uh, god rest him i mean we lost him last year along with a bunch of other people became a quite a distinguished elder gentleman and uh incredible represent representative of the of the music and is a very important uh transmitter of of wonderful songwriting um, on the other hand <clears throat> I knew him back in the day, uh, in his bad old days, and he was kind of um, um, seriously obnoxious <laughs> and had a drinking problem. And, um, uh, you know, bygones be bygones. But um, when my, when our friend was getting all, all gussied up and you go out to this concert, I, I went into a little snit about it. I was like, uh, yeah, he's only written one good song. Of course, it was like, <laughs> We'd all give our left, you know what, to have written Bojangles, but um, I was, I was like, rah, 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 rah. I can write a song as good as that, and blah 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 blah, you know. So there was this sort of sense of, um, I don't know, whatever. I got fired up, competitive juices. At the same time, I wanted to write a song uh, to thank them for their kindness. So it was sort of the two uh, mixed motives, I guess. Um, one of the interesting things about this song is um, um, this is the song that actually won the grand prize in uh, the Nashville Songwriters uh, Association uh, contest. And um, it was the first year that they had the lyrics only category. I had written the music, the music you just heard, but it wasn't, I wasn't ready. To, I didn't have a good demo of it. And so I saw they had this new category and um, um you know, I said, well, well, why not just send it off? And uh, uh, sure enough, it won. And it was, uh, I was told later, there was, you know, I, there were some prizes. I had a trip to Nashville. I met some really great people. And it was a terrific experience. But um, they they told me, it's like, well, th this particular part of the competition, there was no semifinals. It was like 900, over 900 entries. And this was it. I, I won period flat out and uh that was quite an honor and uh um of course there was one guy there i met he was one of the judges who, who was not on my camp and he, and he said oh yeah the song about vegetation <laughs> which which i have to admit <laughs> there's, there's lots of trees and, and flowers and i don't know where that came from i was just what's interesting about the song i guess it's it, it's painting a scene of a place that, um, you know, the, the friends are, are everywhere and yet they're not named. They're not, you know, it's somehow it's all, uh, inferred or evoked. And I think that was the part of the song that really, uh, 
it was fun. It was fun to write. Once I realized that was the track I was on, that I was trying to summon up this uh, scene, and that the, the the emotional would part would be inferred. Now that's not exactly, um, you know, uh, the way you get into the top twenty. <laughs> In pop music today, you have to have three words that you repeat 17 times. But um, anyway, it's my style. So that's 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 the story. Awesome. Awesome. And most of the de- details are accurate, not 100%. <laughs> no poetic license, but maybe, you know, 80, you know, three quarters of the, the details are literal, literal details. So. I collected, you know, and a couple things just to make make it a little more interesting. Yeah, I really like your uh, use of the word aquifer. Not many people use that in a song. Right. I know it's uh, not a typical pop song word, is it? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but that was what this that was what was going down, you know, so Sometimes, sometimes facts get in the way, and sometimes facts are what you want. Is no, there's no rule. So, I think we have time for one more song. Oh yeah, you want to try another one? Okay. Um, well, you'd ask me to write something that's uh, uh, to write, uh, rather to you know bring something that was. Uh, uh, you know, recent, current, or whatever. Uh, so this is actually, I guess, about the eighth or ninth rewrite um, of a song. I don't know. It's a working version, I guess you would say. Um, I don't know if it's finished or not. Um, uh, the uh, I'm kind of still uh, doing some trial and error uh, work on it. And... Uh, I, uh, I think what I'll, um, I'd, I'd rather let people hear it and make their own judgment about what it means. Um, and uh, I could say a little bit about where I, uh, how I developed it or what ideas I had when I developed it. I'm not quite sure what it means myself. Uh, I have a few suspicions, but uh, this was one of those uh, intuitive type of songs, you know, some, some songs you, you write from a title uh, or you have um, a particular point you might want to make, you know, and you kind of develop that and make it happen, you know. Other songs, I like, uh, I don't know, it's a little bit like, uh, uh, I guess some novelists, they write from an outline and they kind of know everything that's going to happen and sometimes the outlines are very elaborate, I understand. And then other novelists, they sit down with a blank sheet of paper and they write the first sentence and then, you know, see what that means and then write the second sentence, you know, and just keep going. Um, so I hear. So I think this is more like the latter uh, approach. Uh, but uh, let's see uh, what you think. It's called... Uh, Standing in the Goodbye Rain. Mm -hmm. 
Forever is a time so hard to tell Using a cuckoo clock I count love by the eons Of ocean-wearing rock Can't believe we did all that Like a theft in seconds flat Shot on the back lot We're standing in the goodbye rain Standing in the goodbye rain Joan of Arc sure had that spark But it burned her in the end Paradoxes in tiny boxes Bind like a sheet man on the balance beam Can't be sure It's not a dream Or like a boom shot On the back line We're standing in the goodbye rain Standing in the goodbye rain If parting is such sweet sorrow Show me where it's sweet Never dug it much myself I always drag my feet Sleeping in cause we stayed up late I haven't quite reached our sell by day Boom shot on the back lot We're standing in the goodbye rain Glycerin and milk for the rain machine Help those raindrops look so clean You and me can be all we can To step into the hurdy-gurdy man Or let the shot on the quad Strike podcast. Standing in the goodbye rain. Have a good one. Standing in the goodbye rain. A curtain of goodbye rain. That was Jeep Rosenberg with his song Standing in the Goodbye Rain. Yeah, so. <laughs> uh, you heard, I think you heard that a version of that before, uh, right? At a workshop? Yes, I did. How does this square up with your memory of the when you heard it the first time? It sounds more concise and clear, in my opinion. Yeah, well, that sounds like a plus. Yeah, I tried to clean it. I mean, kind of focus it in a little more. I've moved some things around. There's a lot of, there's some new, some altogether new writing, and I threw away some stuff. And um, yeah, it's definitely in, in one of those songs where it might be finished and and there might be some other opportunities. Um, 
and I'm just, you know, I'm, 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 I'm playing it more now and I feel like it's a working version. So then playing it, it gives me some, some ideas um, of what I might want to do or, you know, et cetera. So, um, and I have a vocal arranger um, that I'm going to run it by and see, uh, you know, what he thinks, like where's, where's some, maybe some opportunities, you know? Anyway, in terms of, of inspiration, it's, you know, it's, it's, I can't remember the, 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 the central idea or the central image has to do with um, the, um, you know, in, in, in film, uh, how they create the impression, the, the appearance that uh, the scene is happening in, 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 in a rainstorm, you know. Um, and um, it's goodbye rain, I guess it sort of implies some sort of um, farewell um, scene. Um, and yet, because it's uh, cinematic, it's it's not it's not real. So, I mean, a lot of the, I think a lot of the song has to do with that sense of um, um, uh, what's real, what isn't real, you know. Um, and uh, is yeah. I don't want to try too hard to explain um, because I'm not quite sure that that's healthy <laughs> uh, artistically, and yet at the same time I do have some idea what it means, but. I have a friend who, um, he's a science writer, pretty, uh, he's won some awards and things like that, and he specializes, among other things, he has several different uh, things, concerns, but one has to do with some very esoteric stuff in physics about alternative universes. Um, and uh, I should say that this uh, lovely guitar that I'm playing <clears throat> is kind of a, uh, is kind of from an alternative universe because it's it's a composite of um, features from three different guitars from uh, 1927 to 1931 that never existed in our universe. Um, you know, I mean, uh, this is not a gu guitar nerd's show, so I won't drag people too far into the details, but suffice it to say that I've, yeah, I've combined certain um, uh, appealing or, or iconic elements from, uh, from uh, the uh, Nick Lucas guitars of the late 20s and a little bit of a, of a Martin guitar from 1930. Um, yeah, so uh, that was really fun to um, have this uh, executed by a wonderful 
a luthier up in Burlington, Vermont, named uh, uh, Dale Fairbanks. Um, and uh, praise be his name, he makes beautiful guitars. And I'm having a lot of fun with this. I've only had this for less than a year. Awesome. So, um, you anything else you want to ask about this this song or? I think we're gonna let the audience gel with it. It seems to be one of those songs you have to sit with. I think that's a very good idea. They're in charge. So, do you have any funny stories about songwriting or performing that you'd like to tell us? Well, I've got a, probably a million of them, but I'm actually writing a memoir uh, in a bunch of about 400 micro chapters or vignettes, some of which come from, you know, performing, some from other places. But I, the, one of the um, stories that I, I, I really get a kick out of is this, um, it has to do with this idea of like songwriters being another uh, uh, breed of, of, of um, human or something. Um, this uh, friend of mine, Steve, Steve Warner, who's a, a writer and with some uh, nice recording credits and, and this and that recognition, uh, he was invited to judge a, a regional songwriting contest over in, in Indiana, I believe. He lives in uh, Shepherdstown, West Virginia. So he's over there and, uh, you know, he did the judging and uh, then they had a, um, the judges uh, did a performance, you know, to show their own work. And uh, one of the songs went over particularly well. And this, this, this guy came up to him after the show referring to that particular song. And, and he said, uh, it, it, is, is that a real song or did you write it? <laughs> 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 and, uh, and, you know, I, I guess I can remember that feeling when I was um, a performer, you know, a young folk and uh, uh, country performer that it really was a, another breed of uh, human that, you know, didn't uh, breathe the same air or uh, walk on the same street. Um, there was something uh, different about it. And uh, um, it's pretty funny. Um, and, and there is a passage I think you have to go through that involves just, you know, taking a deep breath and jumping in and flailing away until it starts to result in a song, you know. Um, uh, what's that? It is different in the sense, well, the scientists say that it's one of the few human activities where you get a, a maximum crosstalk between parts of your brain, the analytical part and the in, instinctive or intuitive uh, part um, talk to each other very actively, uh, it, you know, as a core um, characteristic of it, of it compared to a lot of other, you know, things that you could do with your noggin so jeep do you have any current musical projects you're working on at the moment well i sure do thank you for asking uh, well the main thing is that last song uh standing in the goodbye rain is part of a, a new body of work 
that I've been started uh, toward the end of the peak, or the first peak of COVID, I guess, um, and uh, into the present, I'm, I'm expecting to record this year. So um, probably in, in Tulsa, where I am, there's a lot of good recording studios here, lots of great musicians, and um, I have uh, some, some coaches working with me uh, to develop the material and all that. So, um, yeah, look, I mean, look for that. I mean, so here we are a few weeks later, uh, due to some technical issues with a battery on the other end, we had to, uh, stop in the middle of Jeep giving out his information on upcoming projects and how to get in contact with him. Um, so we'll be recording that today. <laughs> yeah, shame on me. Uh, kids, this is a lesson, you know, wear a belt and wear suspenders at all times. Uh, well, you know, I, I guess I... Um, I overestimated my uh, battery uh, capacity or something. I don't know. But it was quite dramatic at the time because I was about to say, and if you wish to get in touch with me, um, please write. And then, of course, all everything was lost. Um, but um, here, but you've been shielded from all that. And we're now uh, resuming something that you didn't know was interrupted. So such are the paradoxes of, but you have to understand, this is asynchronous recording and you can listen to this asynchronously. So fair is fair, let's call it a draw. But what I was trying to say <laughs> was, I have, I'm in the midst of a, a very uh, exciting cycle of, of work, creative work uh, right now with the expectation of recording uh, and releasing material, both piecemeal and in a full album form this year. Um, I, I wish I could give you a, a, a deadline, but it's there's two, a little few variables um, out of my control, but I will start to share. Uh, uh, so you can start looking for that in, in April, uh, maybe on the the uh, Jeep Rosenberg musician page in Facebook, maybe by direct mailings uh, as a reach out again to my mailing list uh, and some postings to SoundCloud and so forth. So uh, if you're not on my mailing list or if you're not sure, please do uh, either just send me a one line email to uh, jeep, jeeprosenberg at gmail.com. That's J double E P R O S E N B E R G at gmail.com. Uh, um, or you can go on to uh, www.jeeprosenberg.com, the website, and there's a, you know, a place to enter your, uh, uh, your email and automatically be captured uh, by by the list. I will not plague you or fill up your mailbox. <laughs> I'm I'm very respectful. Uh, I myself uh, have uh, uh, 
a desire to be left alone sometimes. <laughs> so uh, I was always very discreet and try only to encourage you and let you know what I have to share. So um, on that note, um, I just think this has been uh, a lot of fun. And I have done uh, quite a few radio interviews in real time over the years. Uh, this is my first podcast, and uh, I think it's pretty cool. Well, Jeep, it's been a pleasure to have you on the first episode of the Court Strike podcast. And thank you for being my guinea pig, as it were. Um, yeah. Um, thanks for being on the show. It's totally my pleasure, and uh, good luck with the series. I understand this is a launch, and uh, you probably maybe have some other other guests in mind. I'll leave that to you, uh, but uh, I encourage you to t tell your friends. I think this is going to be a, a very interesting series. If you're interested in songwriting and creativity uh, in song, you know, people will be sharing their approaches and experiences. Well, you've been listening to the Chord Strike Podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode. This is Sean Corkwright signing off. <laughs> <laughs>